Well, for this episode of the North Coast 500 podcast, we are on the North Coast, almost as far north as you can get on the mainland. We're right up in the top northeast corner of Scotland. John O'Groats is about uh, 11 miles to the east of us, Thurzo lies about 8 miles to the west of us, and we're tucked in behind a knuckle of coastline. But if we could peek around the corner, we'd be able to wave at the Orkney Islands. This is Dunnet Bay in Caithness, home to great gin and vodka, as we're about to discover. And Caithness also lays claim to having the world's shortest street, just down the road in Wick. How big is a place? Six feet nine inches wide, as confirmed in the Guinness Book of World Records. Plus, for those hardy enough amongst us, it has world-class surf. Such good fun. That is brilliant. Amazing. Honestly, he's going to be insufferably tough. <laughs> I'm Penny Stewart. And I'm Dan Holland. And I have almost, almost warmed up from this morning's surfing, which you can hear all about just shortly. All of that to look forward to. But we're kicking off with a visit to Rockrose Distillery, which stands here at the eastern corner of Dunnet Bay. Martin Murray is the co-founder of Dunnet Bay Distillers. Um, Martin, Rockrose is now a really, really well-established brand, craft gin. Um, it's award-winning. It's got a very distinctive flavour to it, but you do vodka as well. What, what's the backstory to Dunnet Bay Distillers, to Rockrose? How did it all begin and why? Oh, wow. Where do I start? So... Um, my background is as a chemical engineer and I'm from this area, worked away for 10 years but always wanted to move home, raise our family in a place that we'd been brought up in. So when I say we, it's myself and my wife Claire, yeah. um, we're from the local area, love it and wanted to come back. So looking at um, options to come back, um, not your obvious option, we thought we'd build a distillery and uh, <laughs> create brands that would allow us to reflect a little bit of Caithness in each of the spirits um, and allow us to be at home, to raise our family and to live and work in a place that we love. So it, it, it started with gin. How much is your gin a product of this particular location? Does it reflect this part of, of Scotland, do you think? Absolutely. So at the start, we worked with Brian Lamb and Mary Legg and I would go out foraging with them, harvesting different ingredients, and then we'd distill it, taste it, make some gin with it, and then try it all over again until we came up with this perfect recipe. So in our gin, you'll have things like rowan berries, hawthorn berries, sea buckthorn berries, and then you've got roseroot and verbena. And these are ingredients that all come from the local area. We dry them out, we freeze them, and then we use them in our gin. And because we're so passionate about the local area, we wanted to use local ingredients, but we wanted to tell local stories as well. So each of those botanicals will have a story linked to the local area. And we tell that when we're doing our events, when we're doing our tours here. And it's something we're just really passionate about. We just love these stories that tend to fade away. Um, So Rock Rose Gin and Holy Grass Vodka are um, rooted in Caithness and they've got that flavour of Caithness as well. um, you'll see in the bottles are stories as well about Caithness. I was going to ask you about the bottles. I mean, you, you've clearly got um, you know attention to detail when it comes to the, the flavour profile, but there's a whole lot of bottles over here um, yeah. that I, just caught my eye. And Rock Rose is such a, a, it's distinctive, a very distinctive bottle. Really it distinctive. Really stands out. And it, 
it punched through and punches through a whole lot of the now massive kind of craft distilling um, industry. What was the story behind the the development and design of these? You can hear. Well, yeah. Well, first of all, they're, they're different. It's not it's not glass, is it? Is that ceramic? Ceramic. Yeah, they're ceramic. They're uh, German ceramic bottles. Um, when we did the design eight years ago, um, there was two of us in the business, myself and Claire. So I did the engineering to develop the flavour profile. Claire did the um, designs of the bottle. And we always used to joke, or I used to joke, that if nobody bought a bottle of gin, it was because Claire hadn't done a great job of the design. <laughs> but then she pointed out to me, if nobody bought a second bottle of gin, it meant I had done a, not a great job of the design of the gin itself. So Claire went out and she wanted to have something that looked handcrafted, but looked classy. So um, that's one of the original bottles, which was labelled, we now screen printed. So the bottle next to it is screen printed. And oh, yeah. what that does is it allows us to tie back to like the history of Dutch uh, Geneva, where it would be in a farm porcelain bottle. Um, but with a screen print, it gave us that kind of quality finish. Um, and it stands out on the shelf. You know, when it does. we were looking at gin and doing our competitor analysis, everything was in coloured glass bottles. So the obvious solution for us would have been to do a coloured glass bottle that was a different colour. But then we seen this and it just really worked for us. It just really felt um, that it was a bottle for us. And that's... Um, the, the tough decisions you make in business where we went with something that we believed in knowing that it wasn't like what other gins were at the time. So, so bold, bold, bold choice. Bold, yeah. It could, yeah. Have, could have come back to haunt us, but it didn't. People loved it for the same reasons that we loved the bottle. You're happy to give us a tour? Yeah, It would be great to see around. Yeah. Fantastic. Let's it, do that. So is this all new? Yeah, so that is Swimming, or more specifically surfing, might not be the first thing that springs to mind when you're travelling around the north of Scotland. But if you can get past the idea of how chilly the water might be, you are in for an absolute bucket load of fun. As I discovered when I joined Iona McLachlan at North Coast Water Sports down on the beach earlier today. Surfing. So by um, the end of an hour, I'm going to be standing on the nose of the board, hanging my toes <laughs> off the edge of it, yeah? I would say it's a slow process. So, you know, to be honest, it's always better to keep expectations kind of low. <laughs> um, Just leveled me very well there, Iona, thank you. But, do you know what, even not, not even standing on the board, simply being in the water, lying on the board, catching it almost like you're bodyboarding, you still get that amazing feeling and rush of flying over the water. What makes this bay, this beach, so good for surfing? It can get quite complex when you start looking into what makes a good wave. Um, and it really depends on your ability with what kind of wave you want. But really, you don't want lots of rocks. You, you can see there's an odd pebble here and there, but mostly along this two-mile sandy beach, it's just nice soft sand. So very safe, very little currents. And the beach is at a very low gradient. So because it's very mellow, when the waves break, they also break very mellow. So that's why Dunnet is so great for learning on, because it's very easy going and a slow breaking wave. Okay. So before you ever enter the water, you need to look at the conditions. And you need to do that for a good 10 minutes, just like we've been doing. So the reason for this is because waves come in pulses. 
Now, you're looking at that and thinking it's flat. Now, that's because it's a lull. So a lull is when it goes very small. But every five to 10 minutes, you get what's called a set. And that's when it goes big, okay? And a lot of people don't realize that waves come in this rhythm and it can catch people out. Because sometimes, I mean, I've done it before as well. I've just jumped straight in thinking the waves are maybe waist high. And all of a sudden, it's way over my head. And if you're not experienced, that can catch you out. Sometimes when the waves are bigger, you do get the odd rip current flowing out. So I don't know if you've heard of a rip before. They do, they kind of, they, they, the water funnels its way back out again. Exactly. Really, really quickly, doesn't it? And there is no way you can swim against a rip. No, so that's when people get into trouble is they kind of panic and they start trying to fight that current. But in, in real life, really what you want to do is just totally relax. And you can even just let it take you because basically the rip usually only goes to the last breaking wave. So it's not going to take you miles and miles out to Orkney or anything. Good. It's just going to take you slightly past where the last breaking wave yep. is. So it's, it's not too serious. Uh, or you can just paddle to the side of it. So parallel to the beach and then you catch a wave in nice and easy. So that's rips. Really good stuff to know about. Second dangerous rocks. Again, slightly touched on that. There's not many along this bay, but still cover your head every time you wipe out. And the final danger, which I know we'll have no issues with today, is other people. So you can have a little look out right now and see there's not a single soul in sight, apart from one dog walker over there. Um, so it's easy to remember the three risks for surfing. It's the three R's. It's rocks, rips and randoms. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> I didn't think about that. Now onto our boards. We've got the front of the board, obviously at this end, and it's called the nose. Yeah. So just like the nose on our face. And then round at the back, we got the tail. This is the area that we stand on and it's called the deck. And then if we flip the board around, we got the fins. So the fins help us control and steer our board. The final part then is our leash. It's just under here. It's gonna go nice and tight around your ankle yep. so you don't lose your board. Now it needs to go on your back foot. Yeah. So what we'll do now, if you could, do you want to lie down on your board yep. for me? So it's a fine line, but what we tend to say is have just your toes off the tail. Okay, so just your toes yep. off the back of the board, making sure you're centered. And when we spot a wave, we need to start paddling. So you want to do nice long strokes, reaching forwards, taking your time. Yep. Try and keep your head and chest up. And then once you feel the wave, lift the tail of your board. You need to do three more big paddles. Now, when you feel yourself on that wave, you want to bring your hands down by your chest and go into a chicken wing position. Okay, right. so hands down, elbows up. Now there is two ways. Well, there's a few different techniques, but there's a harder way and an easier way. I'll show you the harder way first. So it's one explosive push straight onto your feet and then I'll show you the breakdown after. Okay. So what you do is one big push straight onto your feet, landing sort of side on, arms up, staying low. <laughs> I should just describe that because you sprung like a this 
coil <laughs> bundle of energy, you went from this banana position lying on your front mm -hmm. in one incredibly deft manoeuvre, which there is no <laughs> way I'm going to replicate that, to go <laughs> up <Stop>. to <laughs> your, your lead foot forward. Yes. Penny here, who's recording this, is she can she's got the visual image of what's going to happen in a wee bit of time. This, I'm, I'm staying quiet till now. <laughs> I can guarantee it's not going to be like that. On you go, Dan. I want to jump in and do some commentary. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this probably took me about a year to learn. Oh, well, that's good know? to know. Um, so it's not easy. That's for sure. So don't don't stress about doing this one at all. But I'll uh, I'll explain it a little I'm bit. I'm quite keen and then on challenges, try. though. I'll be honest. Feet on there. My feet just fallen off the back. There we go. You got it. So big push, twist. That's not bad. That was oh, disappointingly you good. Landed, you landed on your toes. So that's actually pretty good going for a first But I've got both, time. my both feet are quite close together. So I noticed it. yours were. You're like this. Yeah. So all you got to do is twist a bit more, straighten out. So you've got a wide stance and then you'll be flying along. But probably as soon as we go out there, You'll forget all of it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it does take time. But muscle memory, a lot of practice. And I mean, again, when I surf, I've been surfing for quite a long time. So I don't really need to think too much about when to paddle, which wave to catch, how to pop up. It's all kind of instinct. Uh, just like anything when you do it enough. Yeah. So yeah, should we give it a go? Let's give it a go. Let's give it a go. So Dan and Iona have just wandered out into the surf. Oh, so Dan is round and on the board. <laughs> he's doing his paddles. There's the wave. And he's actually up onto his knees. <laughs> he's nearly standing up and he's in. That was pretty good. That was disappointingly good, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think Iona's just brilliant. Her enthusiasm is just so infectious. Dan's back on the board and he's just turned to face the beach and now he's just waiting on a wave coming up behind him. There he goes, paddle, 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 paddle. <laughs> I'm not commentating because I'm so astonished. Oh my God, Dan is up and surfing. <laughs> His arms are raised in triumph. Good fun. That is brilliant. He did amazing, honestly. He's gonna be insufferably tough. They go up well three, four times straight away. So no, no, no. Uh, let's get first wave ever yeah. on a surfboard. Yeah. And I was up. I probably only went about a meter or two. <laughs> but oh wow. You can feel the water pushing you and the power of the water is incredible. And then the board goes stable and I broke it down in my head to arms forward. I didn't quite do that deft butterfly flip up onto my feet, <laughs> but get one good wave and you're buzzing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. You're definitely stoked right now. <laughs> I am 
point breaks out <laughs> totally. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Now, but what's really good about this beach, I'm a, I am a total beginner. Yeah. Surfing World Championships come up to this part of Thurso, don't they? Yes. So this is not just a beginner's beach. It might be further along the coast, but this is world class. People come from across the world to surf here. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty unique coastline. Um, I mean, like next week, we've got the Scottish national champions up here. Uh, so yeah, I'll be entering that. Yeah, I was going to say, get, yeah. get your entry in. <laughs> I might get a thicker wetsuit. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the British championships usually get held up here as well. And um, when I was younger, the, the O'Neill Coldwater Classic World Championships, uh, their series stopped off up in Thurso. So it's, it's really prestigious, a really prestigious area for yeah. surfing, isn't it? Beginners yeah. and experts. It's it's pretty it's pretty special, uh, like I said. But I mean, it's always definitely been slightly sort of uh, le lesser known, you know. Like most people, when they think of surfing, they think of Hawaii and all the other big spots. So I wouldn't say Scotland is is quite up there like in the big names but like i said before that's also one of the great things about this area is uh you know we were out there catching waves with not a soul in sight yeah. and uh yeah for me like it's just something special about that and i do love traveling and exploring warmer places but i think overall my heart definitely lies surfing like cold water spots it's just it's got it's got more excitement to it as well um not just the lack of crowds but even the cold itself you know like a lot of people are really getting into the, the cold water immersion swimming wild swimming and the the benefits from it are meant to be amazing and surfing kind of up here sort of combines that as well as just the, the great aspects of surfing in general and uh, if you're more experienced a lot of people don't realize it's actually winter is our main surf season that's when we get the really good waves um, and yeah, winter's definitely my favourite time of year because of that. I just love it. Like you wake up, it's a crisp winter's day. There could be ice on the ground, snow. I go out and I'll surf all day long for hours and hours. I'll come back. It's already dark by four o'clock, you know, and they get the fire on, you get cosy, you just have a warm bath or shower, eat lots of food. And it's just it's like the most satisfying feeling from it, you know? But if you're in a, a tropical country, it's almost too easy, you know, it sounds silly, but I remember surfing in Sri Lanka and I'd just be in a bikini, I would jump in, catch a wave, come back, sunbathe, and then you just jump back in again. It's, it's obviously lovely, but for me, it's not quite got that extra edge to it like cold water does. Huge thanks to Iona and North Coast Water Sports for that surfing lesson. It was <laughs> mental fun. Just even watching Dan do it was mental fun. If you want to find out more about surfing here in Dunnet Bay, just head for northcoastwatersports.com. Do you, do you ever do surfing yourself, Martin? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've done some lessons with Claire and the kids do them every summer. They're a bit more fair weather surfers but they love it you know it's uh, a great beach and then the lessons are brilliant absolute great fun are they yeah. as good as me <laughs> uh, you're better than i am <laughs> for sure for sure total total beginner's luck oh. but wow i'm hooked i wouldn't win some of that luck <laughs> i think i took about two lessons three lessons before i could get up on the board but we had a, a great time just being out in the water you know it's such a switch off from um, everyday life is just out there, it's great.
You're listening to the North Coast 500 podcast with Dan Holland and Penny Stewart. For more information, just head to northcoast500.com. Martin, we have come in to meet two very special ladies who are a very important part of your gin production here at Rock Rose. So, so tell us about Margaret and Elizabeth and, and the process of gin distillation. How does it work? So we have two stills and Elizabeth was the original still, 500 litre stainless steel vapour infusion still. Um, and then Margaret came along to help Elizabeth with a bit of the work. Um, it's a British still, it's made down in Guildford, Surrey. And um, these are baby Bombay Sapphire stills, same company that designed the Bombay Sapphire stills, did our stills. Um, and what you've got is a stainless steel body heated up with electricity. Um, it boils the alcohol off into a vapour. The vapour comes through these arms and into the vapour basket. The vapour basket has all the botanicals in a basket with holes picks up all these flavours from the botanicals, comes out the arm at the top and then is condensed using local water. Can we have a look in here? Yeah, absolutely, I'll open it up. This is a, our basket. This is strong, when you open it up, you see. So this is... This is our summer edition yesterday, so if I... of what makes what makes what makes. Is it, it's oh, wow. layered, so there you go, when I dig into the layers, so it's, we made two thirds of a batch yesterday, and there you've got things like lemon verbena, you have coriander seed there, um, there's meadow sweet, is it meadow sweet in the summer, Anna? Yes. I always, see I'm out of touch with these things, I never remember the, the exact It's spicy, it, it, it does, yeah. it almost smells of... Um, it's it's a spicy it's the spices I can smell. I'm getting the, yeah. the, the real hit off that coriander seed. Um. Some of the additions we do, you, the you can get a real smell almost like Christmas pudding. It's that kind of if you've got a lot of cinnamon and cinnamon in there, you can pick up these types of notes. So um, I was going to say there's a there's a f I think a fruitiness smell to that almost. And I was going to say Christmas cake. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you have things that are similar in there. You have spices. You have lemon peel, orange peel. These types of ingredients that are con consistent with. Uh, I'm in cake. I'm intrigued by the way these botanical. Did you say you you put them in in layers? Yeah. That's All right. right. So they haven't sorted that. Do you put them in in specific layers for the flavour profile, or does that not make any difference? Well, yes and no. So we don't think it makes a difference, but we don't want to change it. <laughs> so <laughs> consistency it. is key. Absolutely. So we always put in the juniper berries first to provide us a layer so that the coriander doesn't fall through the holes. Yeah. So we make a layer of juniper, which is the bigger berries. Then we do the layer of coriander, then the layer of all the other botanicals, and then we finish off with more juniper on top. Um, and we, that's the way I did it the first time, and that's just the way we've always done it. And we don't really want to break it. I love that smell. I just want to stick my head in there again. It's having having seen the the botanicals like this, I'm now kind of intrigued to to, to have a little taste to, to see if I can match up what we're seeing with with the kind of flavours that you get in the 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 gin. Would it be alright to, yeah, to try a wee bit? Absolutely, I'll just get some tasting pots and we can try that. So what What's this one? This is the original Rock Rose Gin. 
Um, this is what we sell most of. It's our, it was our core product, the reason we started the business. Um, and it's got a mixture of local and traditional gin botanicals in there. Vapour-infused gins are very gentle. They're not as um, heavily laden with oils compared to traditional macerated gins. We like that. That's the style of gin we always like to drink. Now, just on the nose there, I love the fact that having just had a look at kind of the botanicals, that then when you're smelling it, you can you can get them. You can get that spiciness yeah. and the the juniper. And when you're tasting it neat, you can pick out different ingredients compared to when you're having it with the tonic. Um, tasting it neat, you'll pick up some of the peppiness from Greens of Paradise, some of the warmth from cinnamon and cassia. But there is that kind of, at the end, I always think this kind of lemon sherbet rose finish. I was going to say, there's a, there's a there's fruit, citrus in there, yeah. there's, a, there's a, yeah. It's, it's complex. Absolutely. The gin is is not a set thing, and and that's what I find really intriguing. Um, what I find fascinating about it is it's a it's an alchemy. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah, and I, I think it's really interesting. Before tasting neat gin wouldn't have been a thing. Uh, now it's treated like malt whiskey, where People want to pick out these individual elements and then drink it as they like to drink it. I mean, and quite rightly so, because an awful lot of thought has gone into those individual elements. So it's, I think in the, I'm always intrigued in the story of anything. And, and the fact that, you know, so much time and energy and thought has gone into coming up with that recipe, coming up with those ingredients and that particular mix, for me, just adds massively to, to the experience of, of tasting it, of trying it, of drinking it. As you say, it's, a, it's of its place, yeah. which is here in Caithness. Yeah, that's right. And there's a real... Um, there's, it, there's a real nice thing to know that what you're tasting has these elements in it. And you can build it up in your mind that this is how this drink was, was formed and this is why the distiller did it. Um, once you understand that, they just brings so much more to the drink itself. Uh, when we're doing tastings and um, events with bartenders, they love that. They want to know that granular detail because that's important when they then go to mix drinks. So one of the great things about gin is that you can draw flavours out of the product by using complementary flavours. So if you want to make the gin a bit more spicy, you can pull out some of that grains of paradise and cinnamon just by the choice of drink or garnish that you use in the end drink. Um, so it's really fun. So for bartenders, gin's a really fun spirit. You have that adaptability um, that the spirit can be used for different drinks. We've talked a lot about gin. You do vodka here. So how does the process differ for vodka? So the best way to describe it is that gin is flavoured vodka. So it's the same <laughs> <Okay>. process. <laughs> The same process. Um, vodka, you can do things at the end. You can do filtration um, that can strip out some of the flavours that are left there. We don't do that. We do it a different way. We want to add some flavour in. Um, and as I talked about, we're kind of all about trying to use things that grow in the local area that have local stories. So um, Holy Grass Vodka was 
Um, a product that I wanted to do after I found out about the story of Robert Dick discovering holy grass on Thurso River. But holy grass doesn't work in gin. Um, I always felt that there was a competing flavour profile that didn't work. So you'd either have too much juniper and not taste of holy grass or too much holy grass and not taste of juniper. I never really ever struck the balance right with that. But then doing holy grass as a vodka allows that botanical to shine on its own. And it should shine because it's a great botanical, it's like a sweet vanilla grass. Um, so the Polish make Zubrovka, which is the same grass, it's bison grass. In Scotland it's called holy grass. Um, and we could have used their methodology. I tried some translate from Google Books. But then I decided, you know, the part of the fun with this is doing things your way and discovering and developing your own process. So that's what we did. We tried different methodologies. Hannah helped me try different concentration rates. And then we settled on a final um, product, which is the holy grass that you see on the shelves. Holy grass, I'm not familiar with it as a as a as a plant, as a grass at all. So, let you smell that. So that's the holy oh grass. Oh my goodness me! It's like sweet that's vanilla. Really distinctive. Wow. The challenge with holy grass that's is is really finding pungent, it. Pungent, isn't it? Yeah. Finding it, is it, I mean, is it a challenge to capture that smell? I mean, that's really distinctive and... So we tried for two years to grow holy grass. I think we'd almost given up. And then when Hannah was moving, she found some of it was actually growing because it just looks like grass. So it's really difficult other than to smell it or... <laughs> Go to around sniffing it. the grass. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and um, it's only when, I think, when we went to move it that we discovered it was growing here. And now we've got two planters outside with holy grass grows and then we harvest it um, at the end of summer and that's what we then dry it out and that's what you see there we can't get enough um, in our garden so we complement a bit of the dried with our own um, but you see it's such a distinctive smell and it makes such a great flavoured product. Now, of course, if you really want to get to know an area, not only do you need to sample the local spirit you need to get in with the locals themselves, um, like Martin here. But last night we stayed south of here in Wick at Mackay's Hotel, which has been in the same family for some 60 years. We figured if anyone was going to have a bit of local gossip and history to share, that was where we'd find it. And we weren't disappointed. Owner Murray Lamond showed us around. I guess I'm guilty of something that lots of people are guilty of, which is not pausing. Yes. So it's great That's to right. be having right. a bit of a guide yeah. in yourself, Murray, as a local. So tell us about Wick. Um, Thomas Telford was one of Scotland's most brilliant and prolific civil engineers. Um, and he produced an ambitious plan for what was to become one of the world's first modern industrial estate, which can be seen all around the harbour where the squares where people lived above and worked below. The town Telford designed was named Pulteney Town, which was named after his friend and patron, Sir William Johnson Pulteney. So this was Pulteney Town? This is Pulteney Town. Wick <laughs> is actually over the river on the other side. Are this is Pulteney see? Town. And when so I was, we haven't visited Wick yet. No, we haven't visited Wick. <laughs> and when I was at school, you had Pulteney Town Academy and Wick North. And at the sports days where you combined, it was an awful rivalry. Oh, really, was it? <laughs> yes. Is it still? No, 
think it was. So you don't look askance at people over the river? No, not at all, not at all, <laughs> not at all. And if you were young and got married and moved to the other side of town, ooh, oh, well, well, well betide well, you. Well betide. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because we're here on a, a, actually a lovely kind of calm day. It's tranquil, it's, it's peaceful, flowers in bloom. It must have been so different back in the herring days. It really was. I mean, the, the town swelled up from about maybe 4,000 people um, to maybe eight, ten, or maybe 14,000 people in the town, people in digs. And the herring would follow the coast and go round from, say, the western, the outer Hebrides, right round and go right down to Loughborough and um, down on the east coast down in, in, in England yes. and the, the people would follow around, the fisherwives would follow around and do the gutting and uh, attend to the herring and it was really, really hard work. Uh, I, I've seen some old footage like Pathé film footage of mm -hmm. the herring mm -hmm. women working at, as they're gutting and they're putting them in the barrels and they're salting. Yes. And it is just incredible to see the, the speed. speed they work That's at. Right. And mm -hmm. they just work in, in synchrony, all yes. of them. And it's, right. it's a beautiful almost dance, isn't it? Well, one of the stories I've heard um, is that when you had the group of women, which were a team, and I really don't remember, is it three or four? When one of them left, maybe if it was a younger, left to get married, the team was never the same again. And sometimes it didn't continue. And you're right, because they had such a way of working together as a team or a dance that they, that, that was their success. Murray, I couldn't help noticing, we just, we're just walking down a, a, a big sort of side street really, but I couldn't help noticing we've come past a board and these look like Lowry pictures yes. here, the artist Lowry, was he a wig? Lowry was here in the 1930s and spent time in Wick and he did some paintings off the, the Black Stairs and Lower Pontley when he was here. And I'm led to believe he gave the paintings to the lady that he was in digs with. Oh really? So oh. she had original Lowry's. <laughs> no way! Yes, yes. As a hotelier, Murray, this must have brought a tear to your eye if you'd been here. Prohibition comes to Pontley Town. It well. was Yes, a I mean, dry wick. Dry wick. Well, well, you're not going to believe this, but <laughs> I'm not sure. Hotel, <laughs> as it's known now, used to be called the Temperance Hotel, and when it was built, it was built when wick was dry. In 1883, it was built, and uh, it was the Temperance Hotel, and it was part of the Temperance movement in those days. There was a, quite a few Temperance hotels built all round the. Around uh, Scotland, and, and it was it was one of them. For for what purpose? Well, in the 1840s onwards, when the herring was in its heyday, there were probably 20 or 30 pubs or drinking hostelries in the town, and uh, it was causing concern to a lot of people. And uh, the temperance movement pushed to um, have Wick voted dry, so they did have a vote on it. And Wick was voted dry, and it went wet again in, I think it was 1947. Now, sadly, the publicans thought in the day that if they gave away free whiskey in the morning, the people would all come out, get the free whiskey and go and vote. 
but a lot of people didn't bother going to vote because the whiskey was free. <laughs> so hence, hence the wives or whoever <laughs> managed to get the, the vote and Wick was voted dry. Oh, goodness. Goodness. Well, let's, goodness. Let's continue the tour. Just as we're walking back up, I just read there that uh, at the height of the herring season, that up to 500 gallons of whiskey would be consumed that's, in a day. That's right. In which? That's right. In a day? It's no wonder they didn't do any work. <laughs> well, some well, go to vote. Oh well, when you work it out, considering that a lot of the ladies didn't drink and the children obviously didn't drink in the town, so it meant that quite a lot of the men were consuming up to three bottles of whiskey a day. Now we know why it was all the fish wives <laughs> who were gutting the herring. Yes, yes. Men would have been taking yes. their fingers off. Are you a wick man born and bred? I was born and bred, yes. I was born on that hill up there. Not literally on the hill, but in the Henderson <laughs> Memorial Home, where all the people in Wick in my era were born. Uh-huh. Um, and what's your family connection to the hotel? How far back does that go? Our family connection goes back, well, we're in our 67th year at the moment. Wow. And wow. Um, it was a, an interesting <laughs> story. My grandmother thought it would be an ideal business to buy for a wayward son of hers. However, he wasn't really interested in it and uh, ran it for a year or two and then uh, my mother his sister and my father took it over for a, a wee while till they decided what he was going to do but he decided that he would emigrate to America so they bought it from my grandmother and whatnot and uh, they ran it um, for the next few years and then my wife and myself um, we well, I've worked here for over 40 years, but we bought it out from the rest of the family about mm, in the 90s, early 90s. Yes. yes. So? We've just come up to the, I guess, would you call this the, the top end of the hotel? The top end of the, the, the in, hotel. And we're just by the, the roundabout as you come into it from the south, yeah. crossing the river just mm -hmm. here. And I'm intrigued by Ebenezer Place. Ebenezer Place. Ebenezer Place. How big is Ebenezer Place? Six feet nine inches wide, as confirmed in the Guinness Book of World Records. So it is Ebenezer Place. Is it is officially a street? Absolutely. Even yes. though it's really just mm -hmm. about a doorways in width. Yes. I tried. I just put my arms out, mm -hmm. and if I'm, I'm not. Yes. I'm not. I'm five foot five, so I've not got the biggest stretch. And it no. was about an arm full stretched arm and another hand again or so so it was six foot six feet nine inches wide yes goodness and there's a wee there's a certificate <laughs> there's on the wall from, there. Oh, is yeah. that? The guinness, yeah. from the guinness world records oh, the yes. shortest street in the world is ebenezer place in wick caithness scotland which measured just two meters and five centimeters or six foot nine inches long when verified on the 28th of october 2006 the street has a single postal address, which is the entrance to the number one bistro, part of Mackay's Hotel. Hotel. That's right. <laughs> Tell us a bit more about the hotel and the kind of ethos of the place. I was really struck when we arrived earlier, Murray, 
everybody said hello. And I thought it, it felt like I was coming into somewhere. I mean, it was that cheers thing of a feeling where almost everybody knows your name. You step in the door and there was a real genuine big hug of a welcome yeah. to, you know, for us, which was lovely. Yes. Well, it's all about people. And it's all about the welcome and it's all about looking after people. And we care about quality, we care about people and we try and use as much local produce where we can, where it's practical and where it's available. The other thing I noticed, which um, since I became a, a, a lockdown dog owner, um, I was delighted to see it's very dog friendly. Yes, <laughs> uh, it's amazing how things change. Um, as time went on, we, ended, uh, we acquired and rescued Max, who's a red lab of a lot bigger than we thought he'd be. Um, he came from Shetland and he joined us nine, uh, eight years ago. He's nine nine, and that was followed a couple of years later by Bria, who's a black lab, came from Inverness, and she was rescued from there. Um, both lovely, lovely animals. She's now six, and uh, we've since acquired a lovely little black puppy, uh, Finn, who seems to rule the roost. Um, however, we'll get used to him, or he'll get used to us. And are you happy for, for people to come with well-behaved dogs? Yes, yes. Wonderful. In fact, the dogs, as long as the dogs bring well-behaved people, will be even happier. <laughs> well, I can't guarantee that. No, you can't. Murray, thank you so much for, for giving us a flavour of Wick. It's, it's been really, really great. And Good. for introducing us to Ebenezer Place. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Pulton. And I never knew any of that. Mm. Just fascinating. Mm. We had a great night in Wick. Murray made us so welcome. If you want to book a room, find out more, just head for mackayshotel.co.uk. Martin, we've come, come into the office here at the distillery and you've got Big plans for the future I've done at Bay Distillers, and there's some plans on the wall. What's the big ambition? Good question. Well, for the last 20 years, I've driven past an old mill. It's 200 and odd years old, and it's fallen into a really bad state of disrepair. I love that building, and two years ago, I started to look at whether we could do something with it. You know, the business here had done well in the last seven or eight years, and then it was thinking about a longer term plan. So we developed these plans that you see on the wall. Tomorrow we should find out if we have planning permission to build a whiskey distillery inside the 200 year old mill. Super exciting times for us. It's a building that I just love. It's right on the corner as you come into Castletown. It's at the other end of the beach from this distillery. So you can walk between the two distilleries by beach. And it's just got the most wonderful view. And what we'd like to do is continue on our journey um, in sustainable distilling and to develop an all-electric whiskey distillery. From everything we've seen today, I think what really bounces out or punches through is, is yes, of course this is a, a, a business and you're a businessman, but actually community seems really, really important to you. This place and this location um, and working with local people, local products. Am I right? Is, is this place really at your heart? Yeah, absolutely. So you'll see that there's reports of Caithness of young people moving away, 
not there not being the opportunities for young people. We've got an ageing, declining population up here. So for me, what I've loved about this business and for the future business is that we will create great opportunities. We will give young people a chance to stay in the area where there aren't those opportunities at the moment. Um, I unashamedly love this place. You know, it's where I want to be longer term. Um, and I can walk to work along a beach, you know, what's not to like? Well, that's it for this episode of the North Coast 500 podcast. Huge thanks to Martin Murray here for showing us around. Martin, do people, if they want to come here and see you, do they need to book a tour if they come to Rock Rose? What's the best way to find out more? The best way is to book through our online system um, on www.rockrosegen.co.uk. We do fill up quite quickly. It's been a very popular tour over the last five years. So yeah, book online and come and see us. As well as visiting Rock Rose here. This episode, we went surfing with North Coast Water Sports and we were in Wick with Murray Lamont of Mackay's Hotel and that shortest street in the world. We've had a brilliant time here in the Caithness and there is loads more to see and to do. So go and check out the North Coast 500 website Download the app for more information and inspiration for your visit to this part of the North Coast 500. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode and that we've persuaded you to pause and make the most of this fab part of the route from Dan and from me and from Martin. Catch you next time. The North Coast 500 podcast is an adventurous audio limited production for the North Coast 500 limited.